Haul the roll and go. Where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go? Hello, and welcome to Where Am I to Go? Today we were headed down I-90 through Montana. We stopped in Bozeman for lunch and I found that there was a computer museum in Bozeman. It's one of the only computer museums, I think, or the oldest one anyway, in the United States. And so I decided to come on up and see if they had any time for us today, totally unannounced. And Eleanor was more than kind enough to say, let's do it. Now, as most of you know, especially Steve, my editor, I know squat about computers. In fact, my smartphone I refer to as a make-me-feel-dumb phone <laughs> because I, I, I'm not smart enough to make the thing work half the time. So we are here at the Computer Museum, and hopefully I get an education because this is one place that I definitely need it. So, Eleanor, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Steve, and welcome to the Computer Museum. You've put a lot of pressure on me. Oh, no to pressure. To turn you into a smart smartphone user. I don't know if I'm up to it, but I'll do my best to, to let you know what we've got going on in the museum. I was going to say, you don't need to worry about me putting any pressure because I fly by the seat of my pants, <laughs> and this is very informal. It's the way I like it. So let's go learn something. Right on. Well, walk this way, and I'll, I'll show you um, where we start every visit to the computer museum. Can we start with something else, sure. I guess? Yeah, let's let's talk it. a little bit about Bozeman, because Bozeman's a cool town. It's right off of Interstate 90 between Billings and uh, Butte mm -hmm. or Missoula. It's about halfway, I guess, between Billings and Missoula. Yeah. It's a college town. Uh, it's, it sits in a beautiful place. It's, it's awfully nice here. You're right that Montana State University is one of the anchors here in Bozeman and what brought a lot of, a lot of interesting folks here uh, over the past, I don't know, 100 years, I think is probably as long as MSU has been around. Um, it, we're also a gateway to Yellowstone. Just hop over the pass to Livingston, drive through the beautiful Paradise Valley, and you're in Gardner, one of the uh, less visited gates to Yellowstone. The North, the North Gate. The North Gate, yep. And yeah, it's it's just beautiful country all through here, mm -hmm. and it's growing like crazy. Oh. My daughter went to school here 10 years ago, and I can't believe how much bigger it's grown. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's a shock to all of us who moved here ages ago. I, I came from somewhere else about 30 years ago, and the town is probably quadrupled in size since then, and I can't blame people for wanting to be here. It's beautiful. It is beautiful, and lots and lots of recreation. If, if people are into recreation, fishing, the rivers yeah. around here are yeah. awesome for fishing, yep. the skiing, floating, skiing. Skiing is world class. It's, yep. it's, it's a recreational go-to place. Absolutely, absolutely. So that's, I just wanted to get a little bit of the, of the Bozeman thing out of the way. Right on. Thanks for the plug. We <laughs> <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> So, since you brought up Bozeman, a lot of people ask, what is a computer museum doing in Bozeman? I understand, you know, if there's one in Silicon Valley, and there is, that makes perfect sense. But the reason we're here, and our museum is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year, is because the museum's founder, George Karamegiev, was a voracious collector of all things relating to information and computers. And at some point in his collecting life, he decided 
this stuff should be in a museum instead of just in my uh, possession. So uh, he wanted to share and educate the public about all of these incredible artifacts. So that's why we're here. 30 years, that puts that at 1990. That's exactly right. That's before people really had computers in their homes. I mean, what, the Commodore 64 was the big thing then, maybe? That's, That's probably right, yeah. Yeah, it's been around for a long time and certainly predates uh, smartphones and and that oh, sort of definitely. stuff in a, in a major way. Um, and speaking of predating, our museum collection starts with artifacts that are about about four thousand years old. So way what? before way before computing. But when we're talking about computers as uh, ways to store, process, and share information. Uh, if you start kind of tracing the lineage of the information age, you might end up 4,000 years ago in ancient Babylon with uh, the first preserved samples of writing, which is cuneiform that is etched onto stone tablets, and we have some here in our display case. So these original Babylonian uh, bricks or tablets are really some of the first examples of information that is recorded for transmission or repetition in other places, right? That's the this is an original. This is an original. It's 4,000 years old. Both of these, uh, one is a clay um, um, brick and the other is a, a stone tablet. Now when we talk about bricks, we're looking at a piece of, of clay that yeah. is probably three quarters to an inch thick and about eight inches by eight inches. Mm-hmm. And the other one that you're saying is a is a stone tablet. It's it's a stone. It's It's like a a stone that's two inches round, and and it is round, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it has writing on it that is is quite detailed. Yeah, it's cut right into the rock or clay, and of course, before um, preserving writing on stone or later on paper, the way you would transmit stories would be orally, and the oral tradition, of course, survives today and is is thriving in a lot of a lot of ways. But um, what's interesting about Uh, these 4,000-year-old tablets is that um, they are real records in kind of a traditional sense, records of events, of people, you know, mostly having to do with uh, business transactions. Those were the kinds of records that got preserved earliest. This one's really interesting, too. Yep, there's a terrific (laughs) story associated with it, and and the storytelling about these objects is something that really excites us. So... um, Another fascinating artifact, this one 2,000 years old, this is a reproduction of a machine called the Antikythera Mechanism. It is quite possibly the first computing device ever built. Uh, it was built in by the ancient Greeks and recovered uh, in a shipwreck in pieces. And these, you could see these kind of rough pieces. It would be almost impossible to see what they were without um, uh, advanced imaging. But by, by um, x-raying and other, other kind of imaging processes, they've discovered that these pieces were these hand-built uh, brass wheels that all uh, merged together into a mechanical computing device. You turn the crank and predict uh, the motions of uh, the moon and certain stars and eclipse cycles and all kinds of astronomical information contained in this computer. Of course, not a digital device, an analog device, because it's, it's run by gears. But, um, but again, uh, probably the first computing machine ever. And I wouldn't have even thought that they had gears developed and stuff. It's a- 80, is this ADBC? Yeah, yeah, 2,000 years ago. Wow. And these, are, of course, would all have been hand-milled without the aid of, of 
drafting oh, devices yeah. or computing tools or anything. So an amazing and, and, yeah, and to think that you get your spacing accurate mm-hmm. enough having to hand tool something yeah, like that yeah. is it's, kind of mind boggling. Also, it is pretty amazing. Um, just to bring us back to writing in this area, this uh, here on display is an original leaf, a hand, a hand uh, written leaf from the Bible from Oxford, England, in the year 1240. So um, what's notable here is, yes, writing, we all take it for granted, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's books everywhere. Uh, in the 1200s, any book had to be handwritten. There were only a, a relative handful of people who had the skill. Uh, you can see the writing on this on this um, leaf from the Bible is absolutely tiny, and this is before the wide use of magnifying and is this And is, is this an original? This is an original. That's an original That's page. An original page. And I'm telling you, this page is, is like 8 by eight by 10, maybe, mm-hmm. or maybe 6 by 8. Mm-hmm. And the writing here is unbelievably small. We're talking all of the letters are smaller than a grain of rice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really tiny writing. It was an immense skill required to be able to do it. And for that reason, in that time period, um, there were relatively few books in the world. They were wildly expensive to produce. They were mostly in Latin. They were mostly the Bible or Bible scholarship. So not meant for for wide um, circulation. And again, and, like computers nowadays, it must have been for the young because uh, my old <laughs> eyes aren't reading this real right? clear. And all he, had, all he had was candlelight to write that too. So very low Yeah, somebody, somebody had good eyes. No kidding, no kidding. Um, the real revolution in information, or, or one of the earliest, is the Gutenberg Press. This is, again, a reproduction. We don't have our original Gutenberg Press. But this is about a 100-year-old reproduction of the Gutenberg Press that's from the 1450s, so 200 years after this handwritten Bible leaf. Um, and, and the big innovation of the Gutenberg Press, Gutenberg didn't invent movable type. He didn't invent the press technology, but he um, was a metallurgist, and the type that he invented didn't deform with multiple pressings, so you could make a thousand pages from one um, typeset uh, uh, group here on the press. And just for fun, since you guys are uh, have come all this way, I'm going to show you this. This is a 500-year-old... Um, encyclopedia page printed on a Gutenberg press. Wow. And this is original. That's 500-year-old paper. 500-year-old paper. And, one and you've got it sitting out here on display. Well, we, we do have UV protection on all our lights, so it's not degrading. But also, um, one thing to note about this paper is it's not made from wood pulp the way modern paper is. Modern paper won't last 500 years because of that. It gets brittle. It turns yellow. This is linen, so it's like a cloth-based oh, Okay. So I was going to say, it looks longer. better than some of the mm-hmm. books that you see in the library that are 100 years old. Absolutely. And similarly, back to our from the Bible, which is also still um, wonderfully clean and crisp, that is vellum, so it's animal skin, like pounded sheepskin. So wow. not, not wood pulp either. That's a that's a piece of sheepskin. Yeah, it's it's called vellum. That's the process. It looks it. just like paper. Looks, that it looks uh, just it's like thin. Paper. Yep, but it lasts uh, much longer than paper. Wow. <laughs> So before the Gutenberg Press, maybe there were thirty thousand books in the world. After the Gutenberg Press. Within uh, 50 years, there are a million books in the world. Hmm. So uh, an enormous explosion of information. 
Um, some other important things that came off the Gutenberg Press. This is uh, an early edition of John Locke's essay concerning human understanding. Our founding fathers used this document as inspiration for uh, uh, the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, bless their hearts. And uh, here's another copy of um, Newton's Principia Mathematica, maybe the most important scientific book ever written. This is the third edition, uh, the last edition that was printed during Newton's lifetime. So, and these are like 300 years old or 400 old years books. old, too. Yep. Super old books printed on a Gutenberg press. I like to imagine Newton was alive for this printing. Maybe he, maybe he touched this book. Wouldn't that be cool? I can't prove it, but it's, but it's exciting for me to think <laughs> of it. Just to think that it was even it's on Earth when he was here <laughs> is, know, is pretty amazing. Wow. So how do we get from all this information, and we're focused a lot on writing so far, to computing? Well, one thing you need is electricity. Uh, here we have on display a Volta battery. It is from the same town and from the same era as Alessandro Volta himself. I don't know, I can't prove that he built that one, but it's entirely possible. So that was the first, or one of the first um, attempts to generate electricity. This is a, a, a called a Volta pile and it generates electricity. But it wasn't until Tesla and Edison that this electricity was kind of harnessed in the service of uh, running machinery. So. Um, there's an Edison phonograph, which still works. It's pretty amazing. Um, and some early uh, telephones, just to show you the kinds of um, technologies that electricity powered before computing. And this Volta battery is a really interesting looking thing. It's Are those lead plates in there? You know, I, I'd like to tell you that I know what those are made of, but I don't. I'm okay, so <laughs> we don't know what these plates are, but this, this, this thing's a cylinder that's about two inches in <laughs> diameter and, and about... Uh, 18 inches long and has a whole bunch of little plates in it mm -hmm. and uh, was it sealed copper in glass? Copper and zinc. There copper and zinc. Okay, <laughs> they're, they're copper and zinc separated plates by yeah, and they're separated by leather in order to get the a little electric, electric current going mm -hmm. through it. Mm -hmm. Now was that also encased in glass? It, it had to have been because have they, had, they yeah. would have had to have had an acid yeah. in there of some yeah. sort it have an activator of mm -hmm. some sort. Mm -hmm. It would have originally. Wow, this is all, I mean, I play around with batteries and cars and all that kind of stuff. This is just cool as all it's get out to see cool. some of this evolution. It's pretty cool. Um, so now we have information, we have electricity. Now, how are we jamming all this information using electricity into a computer? And the binary switch, which sort of encodes information as either a one or a zero, an on or an off, that was one of the kind of um, early... Uh, innovations that that uh, made computing possible. This is the uh, a model of the original binary switch called the Model K, built by its inventor George Stibitz for our museum. He called it the Model K because he built it in his kitchen, and you can see that he used things that he had uh, at hand: uh, telephone batteries. There's a um, tobacco can from George Washington pipe tobacco, and some very simple switches. So out of household objects, he created this switch that uh, formed kind of the germ of, of the idea of digital computing. Wow. So there are lots of computers that claim to be the first computer. The ENIAC has, has a claim um, on that computer. And this enormous computer uh, ran entirely on vacuum tubes, um, 18,000 vacuum tubes. Uh, and it 
kind of by modern standards, um, ENIAC would take years to calculate simple problems that might only take moments or you know milliseconds with your smartphone. So, so in terms of its computing power, um, it was not uh, not enormously powerful. It only it, it only ran on a few. Um, and now uh, you got a watts and all these kind of hand hand built circuits. You could represent the computing power of ENIAC on a tiny little chip pretty pretty easily. Um, and you've got pictures here of, of some of the early computers that are taking up whole rooms. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy sitting here with uh, vacuum tubes behind him and in front of him. Uh, like you said, 18,000 vacuum tubes. Mm -hmm. That's a lot. And if anybody doesn't know what a vacuum tube is, go see if you can find an old, <laughs> old radio or television TV, or something yeah. and take off the back. Mm -hmm. And you'll see these vacuum tubes. Uh, that that technology, I'm sure, went out. I mean, when I was oh. a kid, I'm 59 years old. Yeah. When I was a kid, I remember them having vacuum tube testers mm -hmm. in the grocery store, mm -hmm. and you could go down and test your tubes wow. because they went out every once in a while on your uh, television. So I love that you say that. Antiax tubes lasted about three minutes each. So this guy who's photograph you pointed to, his entire job is changing vacuum tubes. How does he so. know which one in 18,000 <laughs> that he's supposed to replace? I'm sure he had a strategy. Holy smokes! I'm sure he had a strategy. <coughs> and he had also generated a lot of heat. Um, oh, I'll bet it yeah, did. Yeah. So, um, part of the story of, of advances in computing is a story of miniaturization. So, the enormous ENIAC takes up a huge amount of space, requires an enormous amount of power, um, delivers very little um, computational power. But through the decades since ENIAC, which is in the 40s, we've been um, making huge advances in miniaturizing both the circuitry and the, and the power um, uh, delivery for these objects. So let's skip ahead about uh, 20 years from ENIAC and we get to the first commercially available desktop computers. This is the PDP-8 from 1965. It cost, oh, you know, I, I don't have this at the tip of my fingers, you know, more than $150,000 in today's dollars. It has 4K of memory. A whole 4K. A whole 4K. We tried just as a visual aid to find something that has only 4K of memory. You can't. This has... <sighs> A thousand, 250. 250 times it says a thousand K of memory. This and this is, is a, a this is a card with a, a tiger on the Singing front. birthday card. A singing birthday that card. You could get an has Hallmark. more memory more. ability than what the first than what this than computer the PDP eight than the desktop computer. And what we're looking at here is is a computer that, that looks like an old stereo basically with a lot of little push buttons on the front like uh, dial selectors. Right. And then on top of that it looks like a slushy machine <laughs> is what it looks to me like. And and through the glass of the slushy machine you can see all kinds of electrical components. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you get something the size of a slushy machine with a with a stereo underneath it and it has 4K. It has 4K and it's and its memory consists of circuit boards that are jammed in there. So this is before uh, before printed circuits circuit boards. These are hand uh, hand threaded circuit circuit boards. So in order to get from this beast which weighs And what could it do? I mean with the 4K. It could do some simple calculations. Like two plus two is four. Maybe maybe more sophisticated than that, but it could do it 
quickly and it could do it reliably. And um, you know, I think I think a lot of the history of computing is is kind of developing machines and then figuring out what they can do. You know, okay. so, so um, it's only when you try to feed a ton of data into there you realize it's inadequate and it spurs other innovations. So how we get from this 250-pound behemoth that has very little um, computing capacity to our modern computers is with the microprocessor. So here on display here, we have a little tiny um, silicon chip. This is a microprocessor wafer, the 4004. This is from the first successful batch of silicon wafers, and it was donated to us by uh, one of the inventors, Federico Fagin. And again, it's about two inches in diameter. That seems to be our, our stuck rate here. Everything's right. two inches in diameter. Seems like it. Seems like it. <laughs> but on these two inches, every time we pass through another decade or two of history, we're jamming more information onto these two inches. So go back to our 4,000-year-old stone tablet, our two-inch tablet. Right. It looks to have about 30 words on it. I don't honestly know how many circuits are embedded in this tiny little silicon wafer, but it's, you know, in the tens of thousands, I would imagine. So here we are jamming more capacity into smaller and smaller spaces. Um, the advent of the silicon wafers creates this enormous uh, explosion in creativity in the garages, attics, and basements of Silicon Valley. Here is a, a little a model of a computer lab from the, from the early era of Silicon Valley. And this computer lab, it's got uh, a, a picture of a hippie kind of guy, <laughs> or geek, or whatever Sarah. you want to call him. <laughs> who, is, uh, who is that he, supposed to be? I, I think it's, it's based on um, uh, Dick Barry, whose oh, okay. who's engineering it's setup this is. Like yeah, <laughs> I think it's meant to look a little bit like Jobs or Was or one of those guys. But and then there's just a lot of electrical equipment, you know, a soldering iron, some circuit boards, some uh, voltmeters, mm -hmm. uh, a, a tape recorder, the old style tape recorder. Sorry, a cassette, just in case. Yeah. And and pretty soon uh, from 1971, the development of the processor to the you know 74, 75, 76, you get kind of the first big um, entries into the personal computing uh, market. The Mark VIII the Altair, and of course the Apple. And this is kind of one of the uh, pieces of pride in our collection. This is an original Apple One signed by Steve Wozniak that he donated to us here at the museum. And it's just kind of great to see. There are only about 50 of these in the world. Mm -hmm. And we're really- That are signed or just 50 of them in the world? That's correct. And you've got a signed we've one. We've got a signed one. Which is On display right here at the Computer Museum. In Bozeman, Montana. In Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> great. So, so that's pretty exciting, and of course, um, it's only another uh, 20 or so years before the device in your hand, the smartphone, um, creates kind of another computing revolution. One of, the, one of the comparisons I like to point out is your average smartphone has more computing capacity than the Apollo program. Not, not just Apollo 11, the moonshot, but the entire Apollo program. Um, wow. So there's a lot of power. It's a very powerful computer, and most of us are just taking selfies with it. So. <laughs> I, I know that I know that when I got my, my smartphone, there was a book that was probably six inches thick, and I thought, all I'm going to do is ask Google for certain information, take pictures, and mm -hmm. make phone calls. Mm -hmm. What do I need the other six inches of pages for? Right. Right. But well, I, I, so I know this thing's way smarter than I'm ever going to be. That's probably true. And of course, in the early years. You didn't of, have to agree with me. Oh, sorry. Me. No. 
point. You really got to get with it here. Sorry about that, Steve. I was going to say, though, in the early years of personal computing, there were other players. I know IBM was doing some work in personal computing early on, and um, and a few other uh, companies. And the big stumbling block was, what are people ever going to use it for? What? Who is going to need a computer in their own home? And I mean, who among us doesn't have one now? Honestly, they're immensely useful. But 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 picturing what they are useful for before they show up on the scene has been a challenge, uh, I think, all throughout. So after this Benchmarks of the Information Age tour, which we've just enjoyed, we invite people to explore the museum. I'll give you a couple of highlights while we wander around. We have a couple of rooms devoted to um, the space program. This um, We're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo moon landing pretty much all year, even though it started last year. <laughs> and we just can't get enough. And we are, we're very lucky to have some amazing pieces on loan from the Smithsonian uh, watch that was worn on the moon. This is uh, Commander David Scott's watch that he wore on uh, the Apollo 15 mission. Again, only 12 moonwalkers, so there's a watch from one of them here, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, How do you get that away from the guy who was wearing it? Well, I think I think. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just amazing that, <laughs> right. that you because uh, that would be a family keepsake. Oh my gosh! Thing. But it's all government property, you know. When, oh when, well, okay, <laughs> okay. Off, once you step off that uh, that module, I think they pretty much grab everything from you. Um, we also have an Apollo guidance computer, which uh, is the same computer that's used was used both in the command module and the lunar lander on several Apollo missions. What's interesting here is. Um, the Apollo missions was the, represented the first time that instructions were input into a computer using a keypad instead of punch cards. Because, of course, again, talk about jamming a lot of information into a smaller space. Previous to the Apollo missions, your program, each line of code was a punch card. A program might be a stack of 1,000 cards or a stack of 4,000 cards. But it couldn't possibly carry those things into space. So it, it, uh, the Apollo program, being an enormous spur for innovation, helped um, uh, computer engineers innovate how to input code using the nine key keypad. Um, here also, uh, again, talk about miniaturization. This is the last surviving mainframe computer for the Apollo 11 mission. It's about the size of, I don't know, two refrigerators, weighs about 1,000 pounds. 32 kilobytes of RAM, and a whole suite of these networked together uh, formed the kind of um, mission control computer. This is a for NASA. this is a big thing. Like you said, it's like the size of a double refrigerator. Mm -hmm. And now, mm -hmm. okay, I'm going to start showing some ignorance here. <laughs> You'll be in good company. They had one of these computers down here on Earth. And then they had this other computer that was in the module that was, this one's probably, what, six inches wide? Mm -hmm. And then and then the face of the box would be uh, two foot by 18 inches or so. It's a pretty good-sized box. Yeah. Did these two computers talk to each other? I'm going to join you in ignorance and say I don't, I, I imagine that, the, that all those guys, all those engineers in mission control communicated information from this computer computer to the module. So that was the radio, radio broadcast. broadcast. I think so. I don't think the computers were networked over that distance. Because I was going to say, because the internet and stuff wasn't until a long time no later, but yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I've always kind of wondered if, yeah. if the computers kind of worked I'm with pretty, each other or if they yeah. just... No, I'm pretty sure that's what that room full of guys at Mission Control were doing. Um, uh, but it's interesting that you mentioned the inter internet because, of course, one of the big out outflows from the Apollo missions was uh, consumer electronics of all different kinds because, of course, all this all this basic science and computer science done to miniaturize things and, and repackage things smaller, lighter, so that they could be transmitted to the moon, um, showed up in consumer electronics in um, later years, including like the GPS in your smartphone and uh, your personal computer all owe a debt, I'm sure, to the Apollo mission. So um, some awesome early computers here that uh, we call memory lane, lots of people have fun. Looking at these old things, oh, uh, and we're looking we're looking at shelves that have several different computers. We've got mm -hmm. the Apple II from mm -hmm. 1977. Yeah, we got the Radio Shack TRS-80, which I remember in high school. Radio Shack was kind of up front and, and moving yeah. with the computer that scene. That was the first computer. And in now my you can't house. hardly find a, uh, a Radio Shack oh, I anymore. You've got the Commodore PET. Or PET, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, the Sinclair mm -hmm. ZX80 and the Timex TS1000. Mm -hmm. uh, just a lot of these old computers that are on display. And they're kind of cool looking. You know, a lot of these uh, almost seem to have the keyboard and the monitor kind of all as, as one unit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they have a, a little Star Trek computer quality, a couple of them, especially the Commodore. Um, the... Uh, Apple Macintosh, I remember um, when I graduated from high school, I got an IBM Selectrix, that awesome typewriter. Uh -huh. And my much younger sister, when she graduated from high school, she got the Apple Macintosh. My mom typed on a Selectric the whole time <laughs> I was a, growing up. That's a great they're, machine. They're, they're really neat. <laughs> uh, that little ball spinning around and hitting wherever it hits. And that sound, that's the sound of productivity. The that's the sound of, that, that's a comfort yeah. sound to me. My Absolutely. mom was a medical secretary oh, and she wow. did, she'd go around to collect the work at night mm -hmm. and then bring it home. And so she'd get up at 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning and wow. type to have all the, the documents back to, mm -hmm. the, to the doctor's office mm -hmm. that morning. And wow. so I would sleep to the sound of that selector oh, going. It's just that like means mom. <laughs> That's nice. I love that. Story. In fact, I've got one. I've got one in my house that uh, looks a lot like the one that she had, just oh, because nice. I found it at a yard sale and couldn't pass it up. Wow, how fun! Um, let's walk a little further into the museum. A couple of more uh, exhibits that are pretty interesting. This um, two rooms are devoted to uh, the Enigma Code and how. Polish, British, and American cryptanalysts broke the Enigma Code and hastened the end of World War II. Okay, help me with the Enigma. So, so walk in here and maybe I'll mute this little video so we can um, uh, talk. Uh, the uh, Nazis developed the Enigma machine, which was an, an encryption device that was unbreakable. And and uh, I should say unbreakable with using uh, you know pencil and paper and traditional um, analytic tools. Uh, three different rotors, each rotor setting uh, changing every day and delivering different um, different codes based on the position of the rotors. So a code that changed every day, uh, and unless you had the uh, kind of the original key, you couldn't crack the code. Um, so we have here a reproduction of the Enigma machine and then some original rotors 
from actual Enigma that are on loan to us from the National Cryptologic Museum in Maryland, which are, are pretty fun to see, and you can see how they're, they're wired. Wow, they've got all kinds of wires and mm -hmm. little points mm -hmm. on it, and, and uh, they're just dials. Mm -hmm. But this Enigma <laughs> machine... <laughs> It uh, it looks a lot to me like a court reporter's it, uh, typewriter. Right. It kind of does. The only difference is, well, I input uh, my message into the Enigma machine, and you know the court reporter's uh, machine is meant to record it so that it can be read. The Enigma machine outputs uh, a scrambled code that could be any one of 150 trillion combinations. So that's what holy it's, smokes it's the volume of possibilities that makes the code so hard to break. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 150 trillion. That's what that says. That's what that says. It's almost 151 trillion. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to split hairs, I think you're right. Holy smokes. I think you're right. So, so um, uh, breaking this code uh, was vital in, in um, changing the tide of the war. And again, it was these Polish, British, and American cryptanalysts, if you've seen... Uh, a movie like The Imitation Game or know about Alan Turing and the cryptanalysts at Bletchley Park in England. They are kind of the brain trust that um, they had to build a computing device that would simulate Enigma so that they could crack the code. And that's that's kind of the pretty heroic story that's being told wow. um, in these two exhibit rooms. And these are these are both, you know, 12 by 12 foot rooms or 12 by 14 foot rooms mm -hmm. that have all kinds of pictures. Uh, pictures of the people that were breaking the codes and the machines. Uh, what is this? Well, this is the this is the Norden bomb site. This isn't necessarily related to Enigma, but this is a um, uh, a kind of World War II artifact that has a, a big resonance in Montana because it was developed and um, uh, trained or pilots were trained on it at the air base in Lewistown, Montana. Okay, so, when, when we say bomb site, we're talking about like sighting in a bomb, this, not the site where the bomb was. No, that's right. This I, is, I just wanted to make a differentiate. You're exactly differentiate right. This is, in fact, the, this is an analog computer that uh, sits in the, in the B-17. In the and, nose? Yep, and the bombardier uh, uses information about airspeed, uh, wind direction, altitude, to instantly, or as close to instantly as, as this analog computer can, instantly calculate when you're going to drop the ordnance so that it hits your target. Wow. So that, it's, it's, a, it's a, a pretty, um, again, a, a powerful machine in terms of um, hastening the end of World War II. And again, a development in computer mm -hmm. uh, evolution. That's guess, right. That's right. Is and, the word I want to use. And relevant to Montana. Um, these uh, last couple of spaces are about different kinds of computing. So neural computers that are using uh, different sorts of networks to solve problems, and quantum computers that are based um, instead of on a switch of one and zero, the switches or gates in a quantum computer. Um, represent all the different quantum states of matter, uh, which I am not conversant enough in <laughs> to explicate here with you. But uh, honestly, I have I have watched the videos and read the text in this exhibit several times, and I still uh, am struggling to understand 
quantum states of matter and things like entanglement, where, you know, a, a, um, objects can, or uh, things at the subatomic level can act on each other at a distance. It's it's very spooky, and it's right at the limit of my capacity to understand. So, well, if it's at the, at the limit of yours, it's, it's, it's well beyond mine. Beyond. But but very interesting to to uh, learn about these innovations and where they might take and us. And you've got lots of different videos here that if somebody was into that, they'd be able to uh, delve into Absolutely. it, go down those rabbit holes. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, we don't have as many artifacts about, for example, quantum computing because. It's brand new, so we have some again some explanatory videos, a couple of a couple of uh, displays of the um, the uh, science behind the quantum computing uh, and how it might work, and then the last room that we'll walk into here is kind of our our robots room. These are our our uh, some of our favorite Hollywood robots. Um, none of which, you know, live in our homes and interact with us despite the promise of this 1950s science fiction, except maybe the Roomba, which is an actual robot and that it makes uh, independent decisions based on inputs. So and it seems to clean the floors it, really well. It, right, exactly. So where that leads us uh, in terms of what other jobs we will, we will uh, give up to robots, I'm happy to let them vacuum the floor. Um, here we have uh, in this robotics display robots that make pizza, build cars. Um, the self-driving car is another kind of. And that's an up-and-coming thing. Yep. Down in Chandler, Arizona, if you're down there, you can see the Google cars with the thing on top that mm -hmm. does all of the self-driving. Mm -hmm. I think they still have to have a physical person in there. Yeah. But uh, I think they're moving away from that also. My daughter lives down in Chandler wow. and. And when I go down to visit, we see those cars all mm. over the place. That's pretty interesting because that, of course, the self-driving car is this enormous experiment that's being done kind of in real time, in public. And it's, it'll be interesting to see how quickly that leads to a, a disruption of driving. Um, well, the other thing that's interesting is they had a wreck with one of the self-driving mm. cars here, what, about a year ago? Mm -hmm. And you'd have thought the whole world was going to blow up. <laughs> and yet... We have wrecks every single day with human driving right, cars, right. and we just kind of take those for granted. Well, it, you know, it's kind of interesting. I think it's it's the fact of the robot. You know, there is a whole uh, world of science fiction out there that's based on the sinister nature of robots. Think, here's a little HAL 2000, or I'm sorry, HAL 9000 from 2001, a robot that um, has its own agenda and doesn't necessarily have your best interests at heart. Somehow that's kind, kind of like, like Christine the car. Right, that's right. <laughs> Some kind of elemental fear of robots. Um, and now the one thing that you do have in here is some really, really old technology. She's got a vacuum cleaner that's got a cylinder that's about three inches in diameter. It's about four foot long and it had a hand pump right? on the top down in order to create the vacuum in order to clean your floors right, I'm sure that I'm, sh I'm sure that there were a lot of housewives running around with one arm that was six inches bigger round than the other that's, from I had never thought of that that's very funny I'm sure they all would welcome the Roomba right? I'm sure they would <laughs> so um, so that's you know there are a lot of other little bit, little bits and pieces that we didn't look at here's a flight computer from a Minuteman missile. There's just some interesting things that our museum founder collected over uh, over years and years um, that are fun to delve into. So, you know, we invite 
anyone who's at all interested in the history of information and innovation in computers to come to the museum and dig deep. I, I am in totally in awe, I guess I should say. <laughs> it's one of those things that sometimes I go to museums that I don't expect I'm going to really be intrigued with. And I've really enjoyed our visit today. I really appreciate you taking your time out of your day, Eleanor, and, and walking us through this and, and talking to us about this museum. It's easy to find. Google took me right here. It's in kind of a complex of, uh, there's an like insurance in company and, and some other, a business complex. Mm -hmm. And you got to kind of look for it a little bit, but it's, it's got a nice sign out in front. The roads are all paved to get here. <laughs> if you're driving through, on Interstate 90 and you're looking for a place for lunch and something to get out of the car, walk around and look at, I would highly recommend this. And the price isn't bad. You're at seven fifty an adult. For adults, yep. $4 for seniors and youth and kids under 10 are free. 4 bucks for seniors and youth <laughs> are free. How much better deal can you get than that? It's pretty good. It's and pretty good. Well, I'm so glad you happened in. I'm uh, so glad that you took your time. My pleasure. And you know, the world is full of wonder. Get out and explore and have a wonder-filled day. All the roll and go, where am I to go, meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?